you dream of a classroom where learning is natural? Can we inspire students to lifelong learning? What exactly is the purpose of an education? Inspiring students to be curious, independent, creative, innovative, deep thinking, confident, proactive, collaborative, determined, educated. Rise to the challenge of changing the world. This is teaching. This is learning. This is who we are. Welcome to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast. Does your child want to become a doctor but doesn't have the grades? Have you ever wondered what happens when you get put to sleep by an anesthesiologist? And what is the purpose of licenses and credentials? Join us as we strap on our boots for a trek along alternate paths into healthcare. Today's podcast breaks a streak I've had for quite some time on our podcast. For various reasons, I've not had the opportunity to interview a medical doctor for the Tabletop Inventing podcast. However, healthcare is one of the fastest growing fields in our country today. In fact, engineering and science to address healthcare challenges is also a quickly growing field. So I'm glad I found a unique and interesting anesthesiologist to speak to us about his journey to becoming a doctor and what a young person entering the field might want to consider. Dr. Wayne Smith is a very curious individual with an unusual story to tell about starting with a 2.6 GPA out of high school and eventually exiting his residency in anesthesiology with excellence. This is not your typical four years of pre-med followed by four years of med school followed by residency. Hold on to your seats as we take off for an aerial view of a curious path into healthcare. So my guest today is Wayne Smith. Uh, Wayne is an anesthesiologist, so maybe we should call him Dr. Smith. But that's not the only thing that, that he does. Uh, he has actually been flying planes for quite some time. And he describes himself as enjoying the process of understanding systems and then identifying where a system might be broken and then finding a way to fix it or get it running again or maybe find ways to make it run even smoother uh, once he understands the system. He's also a musician. He plays bass. And I think this is our first podcast recording from the cockpit of a plane. So, uh, Wayne, where, what are you flying today? Well, today I'm flying a, a Mooney. Uh, it's a 1968M20G, which is a low-wing, four-place, single-engine aircraft. Nice way to get around. I can't help asking, what kinds of certifications or licenses do you have for flying? For flying, um, I have a commercial license. The way aviation licenses work, a license can be either private, commercial, airline transport pilot. Uh, those are the three big ones people think of. I have commercial license, and then the ratings determine what you get to fly. So I've got ratings for single-engine land, multi-engine land, helicopter, and glider. Also, uh, airframe and power plant mechanic license, so I can actually twist wrenches on them also. That's impressive. So, which is harder, to become a pilot or an anesthesiologist? Uh, the anesthesiologist is a whole lot more of a time-consuming piece. You can become a commercial pilot with a time investment of about 250 to 300 hours of flight time. Residency for anesthesia is four years, and that's, yeah, on average, 60 hours a week for four years after medical school and pre-med. You described that it was longer, but you didn't describe whether it was harder. 
<laughs> uh, it depends on your competency going in, I guess. Um, I've always flown for fun. It's never seemed hard. Anesthesia has had it, had many hard moments, so I would say the anesthesia piece is harder. I'll for take me. I'll I'll take that answer. Tell us a little bit about about what you do. Uh, like, what does it what does a typical day look like for an anesthesiologist? Well, for me, I work in a practice where we supervise nurse anesthetists. So my day-to-day is spent mostly in interviewing patients prior to providing them with anesthesia, determining along with them or their families what the appropriate anesthetic is for for, for the surgery that they are planning to have. And then I supervise the delivery of that anesthesia throughout their case. I'm not in the room the whole time, the operating room the whole time. I am present in the room during the time that they're going to sleep if they're getting general anesthesia, and then I'm available just at the end of a call. Uh, just It's just a short walk into whatever room I might be needed in. Most of the time I'm not needed, which is good for the patients. That that means that nothing's gone wrong. My, my days start about 6, 6.30 in the morning at work. I'll typically manage four rooms, interview them all, and Sometimes I do procedures on the patients prior to their to their surgery, either for pain control or for, for access to their veins for giving fluids or blood or putting catheters into their arteries to measure their blood pressure. Other than that, it's mostly, believe it or not, most of what I do is talking. So I, I can't help but ask this question because I, I once asked a dental anesthesiologist uh, about uh-huh. anesthesiology, and I think I've been freaked out about anesthesiology ever since then. But he said that the process of bringing a patient down into an artificial sleep like that is essentially like uh, bringing, a, bringing them close to death so that you can do some things and then bring them back. There is some accuracy in that. I don't like to use those terms mostly because it freaks people out. Um, <laughs> we, give, we give a medicine. Uh, it depends on the patient as to what medicine that we provide that induces sleep induces unconsciousness. After we do that, we often will also give a medicine that stops any skeletal muscle action. That allows us to put a breathing tube in through the mouth into the throat uh, without their vocal cords closing up and denying us access or without them literally fighting us. If we did not do that, then the surgeon would have to deal with a patient fighting them off. Uh, really, you know, when somebody comes at you with a knife, whether they're doing you good or not, you're, you're not likely to, to allow them to do that. We allow a surgery to happen by stopping the natural responses to a trauma. I like to, I like to think of it more in those terms than in the, we are bringing you close to death. <laughs> now, what we are doing is stopping the patient's ability. Now, let me clarify, I'm talking about general anesthesia. In general anesthesia, we are stopping a patient's ability to think, to feel, to breathe. In that process, yes, by definition, clinical death is when you're not breathing, when you don't have a heart rate. We, you always, unless, uh, unless it's an unusual surgery, you always have a heart rate. Um, and we provide the breathing. Our machine provides the, uh, the pressure that makes the air go in and then relieves the pressure and the air comes out. It's, uh, it's very simple physics uh, driving a lot of what we do. It's really kind of cool to put the science together. That still freaks me out a little bit, but uh, uh, I would have to say that certainly for trauma cases and other 
things where radical surgery is required. Modern medicine has made some tremendous advances. My impression is, is that we can save a lot of people that we could not save even 50 years ago. I would say that that was uh, accurate and even 20 years ago. The technology that we have seen enter the operating room over the last 20 to 30 years has changed dramatically the risk of death from general anesthesia. Currently, the risk of dying from a general anesthetic for a healthy person is less likely than dying in a car accident. It's a lot easier to understand that than to hear, you have a chance, of a, a one in 200,000 chance of death from a general anesthetic. Well, that's a, that's a number that studies support. That doesn't mean anything. Uh, we jump in the car every day, and we have a higher chance than that of being killed, and we don't even think about it. I think I like that better. It makes me feel better that, that it's better to walk into surgery with a talented anesthesiologist than to uh, hop in the car behind the wheel because I think I trust myself reasonably well behind the wheel, although, um, I don't know, my wife doesn't trust me as much. <laughs> I understand. I understand. I have the same thing going on. Would you get back in your lane? <laughs> yep. So I'm curious, and one of the things that we always want to know on our podcast is how you got here. So you have all these interesting things that you are curious about that you've tried. I'm always interested in how that happened. So Sure. Is it okay if we rewind the clock ways and ask some questions about how you got here? Absolutely. That's uh, it's kind of fun to talk about. All right. Well, let's go. Let's go really far back. Let's go. Uh, let's go back to grade school. And what do you remember, uh, maybe in third, fourth grade, about learning? And and you can separate the classroom learning from informal learning. That's uh, those two things don't have to be related. Sure. What I remember about third and fourth grade was model rockets. <laughs> I was I was into model rockets as much as my parents' small budget would allow. I never got above a above a uh, skill level. What was it three or four? I never did a skill level five, but I wanted to. I was simply a matter of budget that kept me out of that. But remember, in in my first grade year, STS one launched. It was the first shuttle flight, and that was the most amazing thing. Now, yeah, like I go to school and we talk about numbers and letters. Uh, that was all in the periphery in my head. What I was doing was reading everything I could get my hands on about rockets and about airplanes and electronics and radios. And around school, nobody cared. That didn't get me grades, and my grades were according. I didn't care about social studies. I didn't care about English. I was into science. And in a school where we had 20 students, and I was the only science nerd. So that was learning to me. It was what I did. It was, it was just, yeah, it was satisfying curiosity. Nobody was telling me to do those things. Those were the things that I enjoyed doing. Out of curiosity, what do you remember about the classroom experience? You kind of marginalized that a little bit. I mean, do you remember your teachers, peers? I mean, what does stick out from your sort of formal education there in the... Well, uh... Uh, I remember hating most of it. Uh, <laughs> I didn't fit in. Uh, I was dressed with secondhand clothes, and so those things that mattered to everybody else, well, you know, I was I was that kid. You know, between being picked on for wearing bell-bottoms, just after bell-bottoms were no longer cool, eh, nobody really cared that I 
probably knew more about the periodic table than anybody else in the school because I liked it. What I remember about about the formal part really wasn't all that much fun. Even through, even all the way through 12th grade, I had a GPA of what, 2.6, something like that, because I didn't care. I wasn't going anywhere as far as schooling goes. I didn't really think I could actually be a pilot. So, yeah, I, I really wasn't motivated until I got out of high school and got interested in, uh, in other things. How did you end up then through this whole process? How did you end up flying, and how did you end up even being interested in going to, to med school? Like, how, how do you end up there from a place of, you know, having a high school GPA of 2.6? It goes back to my Volkswagen bus. Now, understand, <laughs> my folks didn't have any money, but they had this old 1970 Volkswagen bus, and they said when I was 14 years old that if I wanted something to drive, I would have to make it run. Now, this doesn't have anything to do with the flying piece. The flying piece, uh, it was a dream that started when I was three, but I never really thought I could do anything with it, so I never dug into it until I was uh, 21. So that wasn't going on in these years. This is how I got into the mechanicing part. Dad, get, or my folks gave me the the bus. They, Dad got me a toolkit from Sears, and every time I would try to make it run, I would tear something else up. So by the time I was fifteen, he had blown my engine once because I didn't do it right, and I had blown my engine once because I hadn't done it right. So three engine rebuilds later, I finally got it right and ended up finding this gentleman who later very much became a mentor to me who ran a shop that used to work on Volkswagens. He gave me great information, but yeah, he, he didn't want to hire anybody even though I needed a job badly. So eventually he relented and put me to work in his shop. Five years later, I finally quit working there after, uh, after going through nursing school. But let me go back to the bus. The bus introduced me to healthcare. Now, that's not the way it's supposed to work. <laughs> but I, um, I'm, I'm not following here. You're going to have to connect the right. dots for me. Well, it has to do with a little ice storm that we had during spring break of my senior year. Now, the Volkswagen bus has an engine in the back, so its, so its center of gravity is quite a ways toward the back of the plane, or back of the plane, back of the bus. When you get on ice on a bus, it wants to swap ends. And this was at 10 o'clock at night. The ice storm was making the road treacherous. And I actually had a friend driving. And he lost control on, on a bridge and ended up rolling the bus. The end result for me was a broken neck and a broken jaw and a broken leg. And two weeks in the hospital. And that was my introduction to healthcare. Also my introduction to anesthesia. If that had not happened, I never would have considered going down the road that I took. So that ended up being EMT school uh, because, after all, I wanted to drive ambulances because I drive, I drive things and they go fast, and it's healthcare, uh, which I never actually used, but I got my license. And then because I wanted to go to, well, I wanted to go to Southern, the school that I went to for nursing, uh, and the only major they had there that would pay for itself that I really felt that I could do was nursing. And so I ended up going through nursing school. And all that was because of an introduction to health care that I never really intended to have from the bus. 
So that's how I got into nursing. I did that for a few years. During my senior year in nursing school, I also realized that I could actually take the money from the shop over to the airport and buy one lesson at a time. The cost of a license was very daunting. It's just, you know, at that point it was about $2,500 to $3,000. So being able to do one lesson at a time made it possible for me to go through and get my private license. It was fantastic. Right after I graduated from nursing school, I took my check right got my first license started buying it there. So now I had the the medical piece, the, the nursing piece, and the flying piece, and got interested in being a mission pilot and heard about an opportunity to do that in South America. And I ended up, because of hearing about that opportunity, going to a, a school that taught A&P school, which is Interframe and Power Plant School, uh, and also got my commercial and multi-engine ratings there and instrument rating there. When I got finished, one thing led to another, and I realized that mission aviation probably was not the direction for me uh, for a long list of reasons. And so I found myself kind of at a loss as to what to do with myself. I, I was teaching nursing at the time and flying every chance that came along. Uh, occasionally working on airplanes and using what I had. But one day I was texting with a friend of mine who is a nurse and was managing nursing at, I thought, was was a hospital in Vermont. She said, you know, I'm having a really hard time finding good nursing help. And it was mid-November of that year, so I was winding down the school year and said, well, you know, I could probably help you out. She said, well, great. And then proceeds to describe what I needed to do when I arrived in Kathmandu. <laughs> I'm sitting here going, what did I just sign up for? <laughs> but it turned out to be an amazing experience. I spent two months working at a at a hospital in, in Nepal. It was in Banipa, which is 45 minutes or an hour outside of Kathmandu. And while I was there, I worked with some really cool docs who convinced me more through demonstration than through words that I could, if I set my mind to it, become a physician. I came home after that, signed up for my pre-med classes from the local university. I, I had already taken biology and uh, general chem, half of biology and general chemistry, so I took organic chem, physics, the second half of uh, biology, knocked those out in one year, took the MCAT, and found myself in med school three years after the trip to Nepal. So that's how I ended up in medical school. It was one of those, one thing led to another. I never, I never set out at any point prior to about 2000 with the plans, with serious plans of becoming a doctor. I talked about it mostly to try to impress girls, and it did not work, by the way. Um, <laughs> but uh, I never took it seriously until I got to that point where I had to do something else. Nursing wasn't wasn't really doing it for me anymore. You might say I was burnt out. I was doing ICU nursing, very emotionally taxing for me, and really felt like I was using my back more than my brain, you might say. So I had to do something. It was either going to be medical school or 
nurse practitioner school or something completely different. And, and medicine kind of made sense because it was just the next step up the ladder, you might say, up the food chain in healthcare. And healthcare was something that I already understood quite well. And so I did. I did not plan to do anesthesia, I might add. Uh, anesthesia I saw as something that people did to get rich. And, well, I wasn't about to do something that people do to get rich. So there it was until I got into uh, 1980, not, excuse me, uh, 2005, and Katrina hit, and I found, found myself running teams of doctors and nurses in, in southern Louisiana, helping clean up their volunteers I met was a gentleman named Dr. Bagley who was an anesthesiologist, and I had no idea what I was going to do with an anesthesiologist here in a disaster area. We weren't doing surgeries. I said, what am I going to do with these? It just put me out there. And he was sitting beside the road. I remember this very clearly. He was sitting beside the road at a, an impromptu clinic that he set up with a couple of nurses with his 38 special on his hip because it was kind of a lawless time there <laughs> right after this gigantic storm came through. That was not and what was... I was expecting you to say. <laughs> <laughs> and he was uh, seeing patients, stitching up injuries. Uh, and so that's how I eventually started to give anesthesia a chance, you might say. Once I did, I realized that it was the ultimate end of the journey going through nursing, through EMT, through working in ICUs and ERs, the ultimate critical patient is one under an anesthetic. And so here I am doing what the road led to. Well, I would have to say that that is, that is an interesting journey to anesthesia, and it, wasn't, uh, it definitely doesn't match the journey of a lot of the doctors that I know. However, uh, I don't tend to interview the people who do things the normal way. <laughs> <laughs> I respect that. Um, let's see. So why don't we take just a minute, because I know that you have uh, lots of insights and opinions, uh, not just about anesthesiology and flying, but about lots of things. And you and I have discussed education briefly. And I know that you also have a podcast, which we'll uh, link up in our show notes. But tell us a little bit about education from your perspective in, in this digital age where we have all these tools. Like, what does that mean to be educated now? In the modern era, there is no longer a monopoly on knowledge. There's no longer a monopoly on acquiring knowledge. There still is a monopoly on credentials, but... Not as much as there used to be. Some of the people I know who are the most successful didn't go to college or didn't finish college. But they were in the right place at the right time, having had the right experiences up to that point in order to get into Internet-enabled businesses, you might say. And Steve Jobs. Uh, well, I don't know Steve Jobs so much, but... Um, Bill Gates uh, is an example of someone who, as I understand it, did not uh, finish college and just went off and started Microsoft on his own. Uh, in the modern age, there is no longer a monopoly on learning, on knowledge, for the most part. Um, there is still a monopoly on getting credentials, credentials being diplomas, 
licenses, barriers that are created to limit what individuals get to practice what fields. Now, they're, they are erected for a number of reasons, those barriers are. One is to limit the number of people who can, uh, for example, practice anesthesia. If there were a lot of providers, then the income for the people who have the license now would be less. Now, I, don't, I know it's not really cool to talk about that, but that's, that's the nature of licensing schemes in general. I guess I don't think about this as much being a physicist because most of what we do is either theoretic or developmental. And you right. know, uh, at the end of the product chain, for instance, an engineer, a professional engineer, which I think actually is a license or a PE, I think is a, a yes, specific is. license. Um, someone has to sign off on that right. for certain kinds of devices. I know that you know if I spend time working on a medical device, someone at someone up in Washington at one of the health organizations would have to sign off on whatever the f- ultimate device was. But I don't think about that as much from my side. So what kinds of fields do you work with regularly that they have that licensing requirement? Well, uh, um, the FDA has to license pretty much anything that is used in healthcare, for example. Uh, that's as far as devices, drugs, the works. Now, that is excused on a quality control argument but those quality controls interfere with the process of getting done what needs to get done. The argument is made that the private sector could do that just as well. Uh, there are arguments against that also. I tend to side with the, uh, the argument that let the private sector um, limit its own risk and make the risk high enough so it doesn't. But that's, uh, that's almost more of a political argument than it is anything else. Other areas that where credentials are required are, of course, practice of law. Another, another specialty or profession, you might say, where entrance is limited by those within the profession uh, in order to keep the profits, the income uh, potential higher for those within by limiting competition. So I guess the, the question I have or the, the thought that's coming to mind in this is as a young person coming in to a career, you know, in you know, uh-huh. say a high schooler or a, someone in college, how should they think about their education? How should they think about learning and the relationship to the, some of those licenses? Well, that varies fairly widely depending on their area of interest. Uh, first off, um, for example, internet stuff. Really, if you're going to work with stuff that that is internet-based, you may not require any license at all. Therefore, it, if you want to be in those fields, you just you just need to figure out what it is you need to know and combine that with a certain amount of business learning, whether that be a degree or whether that be just taking classes to understand the business world and the regulatory world, because no matter what field you're in, there will be regulation, whether it's in the form of licensure or something uh, some other mechanism. So it is good to understand, like I was talking about earlier, systems around you. You've got to understand the systems. Whether or not you're going to work within them or, uh, is a different question. But it is helpful to understand the legal environment in which, in which we work. It is important to understand the basics of the physical world, meaning, I think, taking the pre-med classes, the core pre-med classes, really ought to be something that most people take 
not for pre-med, but for life. Understanding chemistry, understanding organic chemistry, understanding physics, and not, not, I'm not talking about advanced stuff. I'm talking about the basics and understanding biology. Once you've taken those classes, you have an understanding of the world around you that rivals most people picked at random. So you don't have to do that through a college class. You can take that online. You can, you can approach that learning online. You can read books. But having that in your head is valuable, in my opinion. Well, it certainly allows you to uh, look a little more critically at the, um, at the things that are passed off as news or other things that oh, maybe yes. you're not you may not think about particularly deeply as as an average person. I mean, I, I can't help it. You know, when I see tech companies advertised or when I see them, you know, reported on in the news, yeah. I probably have a different perspective simply because I know a little bit about what's going on behind the scenes, understanding Absolutely. basic physics or engineering. Yes. So as we wrap it up, the last question we like to ask is, what is the purpose of an education? And I'm curious about your answer, having been through all these experiences? <laughs> in informal education, the purpose of my education was to let me do what I want to do. The purpose of my formal education was to make it legal <laughs> for me to do what I want to do. Now, that yeah, it depends on what field you wanted to go into as to how those two pieces fit together. I chose healthcare, and since healthcare is a very tightly controlled entry, no matter what part of healthcare you want to get into, you got to play by the rules in order to enter the game. You cannot hang a shingle out and say, I will heal you without credentials in this country. So for me, uh, education has always been a means to an end. I don't think of it as education. I think of it as learning. And for me, learning is uh, secondary only to things like sleeping and breathing and eating. It's, just, it's not something I so much think about. It is something that I do as a habit. That is this, uh, I don't know how better to describe it. It's just, uh, I, don't, I don't think of it as education. I think of it as how can I learn about whatever it is that I'm interested in. Well, I think we're going to wrap it right there. I like that. That was a nice, neat bow to tie on that. And uh, if our listeners are interested in learning more about you or uh, listening to your podcast, how would they get in touch with you? Well, um, I've uh, got a URL for the podcast. It's RenaissanceOnlineRadio.com. It was a kind of a kind of a joke. People have always liked to call me Renaissance Man, which is not even something I understood for a long time. And then it was like, eh, I don't want to call that, but I've given up. Decided to take it on. So called it uh, called the podcast uh, Renaissance Online Radio. Just just running with that from that website, you can you can find links to uh, email for contacting me. Excellent. Well, thank you for taking some time to talk to us today about uh, your experience becoming a pilot and an anesthesiologist. Well, it was my pleasure, Steve. Thank you for uh, for your interest, and I appreciate what you're doing. Doctor Smith certainly doesn't pull any punches. He worked hard and found a way where most others would have quit. And along the way, he discovered the valuable lessons of learning how to learn and seeking excellence for its own sake. If your student needs a little spark or a push into a life of curiosity, head over to our website, ttinvent.com, and find our Inventor Camp. Just like Dr. Smith, Inventor Camp helps students become curious about life and seek out answers for their own sake. Don't put it off. 
Go point your web browser to ttinvent.com, that's T-T-I-N-V-E-N-T.com, and sign up for Inventor Camp today. Dr. Smith said, learning is secondary only to things like sleeping and breathing and eating. Let us inspire your teenager to find that same excitement for learning.